everybody. Welcome to Rock and Roll Shinsu Chu. This is episode number 95. For this episode, we're going to do something a little bit different. While we've recorded several field guides devoted to singular years, tonight we're going to do a field guide to a city. And in this case, it's Detroit, Michigan. We're going to offer a tribute to the Motor City for all it has given baseball and music. From Cobb to K-Line to Cabrera, Motown to rock to rap. We don't intend to come off as experts on Detroit. Rather, we simply want to pay a bit of homage to a great American city that has built and exported so much more than cars. And my name is Gabe Estel, and I'm here with my co-host, Dennis Levi Leach and Jonathan Gatz. How are you, fellas? Excellent. Good deal. Good deal. Welcome back. It's good to be back as well. Um, you know, uh, this is, as we mentioned in the introduction, this is the first time we've done a field guide. We've done several field guides to different different years in music and baseball. This is the first guy, field guide to a place. And it seems like it was almost um, kind of unanimous that this city would be first, you know? I mean, it's um, among American, among, uh, American music hubs. Um, that are uh, that are so important to popular music. I mean, Detroit's you know it's uh, it's kind of unrivaled. You know, I mean in that regard, just as I mean, obviously you have you always people always think of New York and L.A. and Chicago, but you know Detroit is uh, just so instrumental to uh, to popular American popular music. So it was it was it was kind of an easy choice. I, I dare to say. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, there's so much to offer there that uh uh it was a great opportunity to even just kind of learn about the tigers that other team in yeah the honestly yeah <laughs> like that was the most like you know this is the most i've learned about the tigers in a while all right well let's let's talk about uh let's talk about bless you boys here uh and go ahead and we'll get right in we're gonna talk about the tigers quite a bit uh here at the beginning and then kind of uh transition to music a little bit later but Talking sort of about the the history of the Tigers, one of baseball's older teams. Um, you know, Jonathan can maybe start with kind of giving us a little bit of a historical view of kind of the best, you know, the, the, the best Tigers teams, the best players, as well as, you know, the stadium history uh, up until, you know, about, what, 20 years ago or so the Tigers played in, in one of baseball's more iconic parks, um, Tiger Stadium. So uh, we'll talk a little bit about it as well. Uh, got some things to talk about with the Tigers championship teams, too. So, Jonathan, you want to give us a little bit of an overview? Yeah, thanks, Gabe. Uh, you know, reading about the Tigers, it's interesting because uh, we're used to really their, their most recent success and uh, the, the dominant teams that they had in the 2000s, you know, making the World Series a couple times. And, and it's easy to think that, oh, you know, the Tigers have often been consistently good, and, and we easily forget about the years in which they were just absolutely awful. Um, <laughs> like, amazingly, historically awful. Um, the fan bases, uh, needless to say, longtime Tigers fans have been on a little bit of a roller coaster. Yes, yes. And so I was surprised to learn that they've only won four World Series in their, in right. their history, and most recently in 1984, 1968. Six. Um, they've lost seven World Series um, twice in this century. Um that uh, that 68 team was uh, led by uh, uh, starting pitcher Denny McLean. So 68 was the year of the pitcher. And because of like the height of the mound and, and all these factors, oh, um, yeah. uh, pitchers were especially dominant. I think I saw that the American League, the average American League batting average that year was 230. Um, Jeez. 
<laughs> Denny McLean, that was the year Denny McLean won, won 31 games as a starter. Damn. Um, uh, the Tigers were also led by uh, left fielder Willie Horton, who had 36 Willie home Horton. runs. Yeah. Um, a very veteran Al Kaline, um, though he kind of play, had more of a, of a reserve role that year. Right, um, that would have been near the end of his career. Exactly, right? yeah. yeah. He, he was the only uh, future Hall of Famer on that team. Um, and it was also the last uh, of the single division league. Uh, so if you won your mm-hmm. division, you won the pennant, you went to the World Series. Um, uh, so yeah, 68 was the last year for that. And then uh, that team also had 30 last at-bat wins. I don't know if that's the equivalent of a walk-off necessarily, because I guess you can have mm-hmm. you can have a a win generated by your last road at bat as well. Sure. sure. Um, uh, but in the world series, it was Mickey starting pitcher, Mickey Lolich, who, who won three complete games. And, um, wow. the, uh, uh, and, and it was, uh, McLean who actually ironically struggled a bit in the world series. Um, so that was a 68 team. The, the 84 team, uh, that won the world series was led by, uh, uh, Alan Trammell, Lou Whitaker up the middle, of course, yeah, uh, and uh, the greatest uh, um, double play duos of all time. Absolutely, uh, Kurt Gibson as well, and uh, the MVP that year uh, was the relief pitcher Willie Hernandez. Uh, Willie uh, won the Cy and the MVP in '84. He pitched 140 innings uh, in relief and was was pretty lights out. Oh. Guy named Jack Morris was pretty good that year too. Yes, he was. He was. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Um, uh, so yeah, the the, uh, the best players in Tiger history. I mean, Ty Cobb is just, of course, uh, he's the son of a bitch. But man, he was he's right. one of the all time greats. Uh, he's got like a hundred and forty four WAR, which is just obnoxious. Um, Al Kaline, Charlie Garinger, Lou Whitaker, Alan Trammell, and more recently guys like Justin Verlander and Miggy Cabrera, of course. Um, it'll be interesting though if those guys end up going to the hall. Those those latter guys going to the hall if they'll wear Tigers. Um, logos on their hats. I would think Miggy would. Um, I mean, if I'm not mistaken, the yeah. Marlins and yeah, the, yeah, of course. the Tigers are the only teams he's played for, right? Yes, yes. And the Marlins was basically maybe like three years, something like that, four he, years. He won the championship with the Marlins, no? And 03, yeah. yeah. Um, it's a, a bonus question out there. Uh, has any Marlins, has there been any Hall of Famer gone in as a Marlin? With the Marlins um, on their on their statue, I'm assuming no. Okay, I don't yeah. think anyone. That's a good question, Levi. And I don't think any of the. I'll put this in quotes because two of the teams have been around for 25 years. Any of the expansion teams of our lifetime, yeah. I don't think anyone's gone in yet. I mean, they're. Really I, I mean, good. there there have been players that played for them that have gone in, but not. Yeah, like, right. Like but Dawson, as... like Dawson was a Marlin, but he went in yeah. as an Expo. Right. Um, what yeah, did Randy Johnson go in as? Did he uh, go in as a Mariner? I'm looking it up. I would think Seattle. Yeah, I would. I would guess. Uh, no, it's Arizona. Oh, he okay. went as a Diamondback. Yeah. Okay, yeah. huh? So the Diamondbacks could be the newest franchise to have their logo in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, yeah. I oh. guess you're right. I didn't think about. I totally forgotten about Randy Johnson uh, going. Yeah, he was dominant on the Diamondbacks for a long time, but I just for sure thought he went in maybe <laughs> Seattle. If, if like if somebody just walks up to me on the street and says Randy Johnson, I picture him in a Mariners uniform. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. But um, even though he won that he, championship even though, in Arizona, yeah. Yeah, even though I mean he had a very storied career, um, he uh, he's you know he, he played for quite a few teams. I mean, he played well, for yeah. half a dozen teams. You <laughs> yeah. know, yeah. I yeah. picture it's him as an astro. Eckersley. Like Eckersley will always be in an Athletics jersey in my head. Sure, like, always. Even though he played for the Cubs, pretty much. Oh yeah, the yeah, Cubs, right. the Indians. He pitched for a ton Cardinals. of Cardinals. Yeah, um, Boston. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, okay. Yeah, so of, of, to, of course, yeah. anyway. uh, Mickey will of course go in as a, as yeah. a uh, yeah, you would think d- as a tiger. But Verlander eh, probably. But again, he won the championship in Houston, so if he can build a late career True. renaissance there, maybe winning the title probably has a draw. I mean, we just mentioned Randy Johnson. The mm-hmm. you know, even though the three of us may not be like, oh, you know, it's synonymous with the Diamondbacks. That's that's where he won the title. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, mm-hmm. but and he also had several very very good years there and a bit of a renaissance. Yeah, yeah, as well. yeah, right. Um, so yeah, uh, the, you know, those are some of the all time best players. Um, uh, stadium history, yeah. Gabe, you mentioned Tiger Stadium, built in 1912. They played there until mm-hmm. 1999. Uh, mm-hmm. It was a pretty big joint, 52,000, which would rank just behind Dodger Stadium today. It was originally 467 feet to center. Um, eventually, they they narrowed it down wow. to 440. Um, Wowzers! Yeah, yeah. You didn't it, really have to get a hold of one to crank one out to center there, and then hope that you didn't hit the 125 foot tall flagpole that was in <laughs> fair play, just left yeah. of dead center. Uh, mm-hmm. There, um, they had unique overhangs that jutted uh, out uh, the the upper deck out over the uh, outfield warning track, uh, which would resulting in some unique cans of corn turned home runs. You know, <laughs> outfielder could just be planted underneath it and. And it just, you know, sails in uh, to the upper deck there. Really tight quarters there at Tiger Stadium. Uh, I was watching a documentary, short documentary on on YouTube, and and, uh, some of the players were talking, you know, this guy is the third baseman for the Tigers. And he said that, you know, when the crowd started razzing a pitcher, you know, maybe a Tigers pitcher was having a bad day, you could hear it uh, pretty easily. And and so this third baseman was saying that his pitcher was getting razzed pretty bad. And, and, Mm -hmm. um, and the third baseman said, "Hey, you know, don't don't listen to them, buddy. You're gonna you're gonna pull this out." And and then the 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 guy in the stands yelled out to the third baseman, "Hey, you ain't doing too hot yourself, buddy." <laughs> 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 um, but uh, uh, so yeah, and and as a result, a lot of players can consistently ranked Tiger Stadium as one of their favorite joints to play uh, in in all of baseball. Uh, year in and year out, uh, the upper and uh, lower deck bleacher sections were separated from the rest of the stadium, like completely segmented. There was a ch- chain link at one time, a barbed wire fence um, separated the bleachers from the reserve sections. And um, keep those heathens out of there. No kidding, man. <laughs> and uh, I enjoyed watching like the old footage um, that I watched a little bit sure. while researching this episode. Um, it, uh, it it it's it's a it's a it's a beautiful dump that place was you know it's so strange <laughs> I to put it. yeah I mean it's it, I, th- I think the most one of the most unusual parts of it was the idea that those upper deck uh, stands were uh, came out as far as the lower deck nowadays right. they it's, did a, it's a gradual you know it's, yeah. it's a gradual uh, incline and but there it's just like one on top of the other. Uh, like yeah. some New Orleans porches or something, you know. <laughs> right. and, yeah, it's, uh, it's it's a it's a it's a 
it's a design feature that went out of fashion, you know, I guess a long time ago, but it's, yeah, I I noticed that as well. I was like, wow. However, one perk of that I noticed was that there was lots of shade. Like everybody had shade. (laughs) Of course the, the, the upper deck was covered as well. So it gave it a very boxy and non sleek look, but a lot of people liked it. So, um, Let's like see a game on a hot summer day. You know? yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you you watch some um, uh, you you watch some footage, uh, some old footage, and uh, there was one section of of that stadium that was not covered, and uh, you could tell it could get pretty hot out there because I imagine in that box it, there wasn't a whole lot of yeah. circulation, uh, and uh, I think m- most of the dudes were shirtless on on some Cecil Fielder <laughs> home runs I saw going Perfect. out to left field. Right, uh, but uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Tiger Tiger Stadium, rest in peace. Uh, well loved for sure. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So speaking of uh, uh, Cecil Fielder, Gabe, uh, uh, it's my understanding that that might be one of your favorite Tigers of all time. Or yeah, you know, he would be one of them. Um, you know, I the other two were both backstops actually, um, and one of them. Um, uh, is a guy like when you when you mentioned the 1984 team, I had to punch it in his his name in Baseball Reference. I was like, oh, was he on the '84 team? No, he was playing in '84, but he started he started his career in Oakland, which I I, I, I mean I would have been young, uh, but 1984 was his rookie year, and he started out in Oakland before he came to Detroit. But his best years were actually he went from Oakland a stop in Baltimore and then Detroit, his best years being mostly in Detroit, uh, maybe with a few good years in Baltimore. Who am I talking about, gentlemen? Anybody? A catcher? He's a catcher. Uh, and his uh, best years were in Boston. Uh, no, no, he never played for Boston. His uh, best his best years were in Detroit and, and Baltimore. Oh, Baltimore. Okay. Um, uh, let, uh, let me look. Mickey look. Tettleton? You got it. I was going to yep. say that, yeah. Yep. Was, it's got to yep. be M.T., yeah, absolutely, man. So yeah, he's one, he's one of them. So Fielder, obviously, um, you know, it, it, the the thing that struck me about Cecil Fielder, just to hop back for a second to what Jonathan was saying, um, you guys remember when he hit what fifty one home runs that yeah nineteen ninety maybe it was, it was like I that? think it was ninety because nobody hit fifty in the eighties. It was the first decade right. in baseball history nobody hit fifty, and so when he hit fifty one in eighty or ninety, it was like finally somebody did it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we were. I was excited about that. I mean, yeah, nineteen ninety. You know, I'm in the throes a, of collecting yeah. cards, and yeah. like that shit blew my mind. That like he I got, got a, hit fifty home runs. Yep. He had he had a very nice uh, V Wells insert card in the uh, upper decks that next season. Oh, yeah. you right. remember? Right. It was yeah. like the painting of him, and it said fifty one. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. God bless He's V Wells. My, that's right. He, yeah, so yeah, Fielder is one of my favorites. I always liked Tettleton as well. Um, like I said, his he actually didn't come to Detroit until he was thirty, which I always right. think of him on the Tigers. So he didn't he didn't actually come to the to the Tigers until ninety one. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So ninety one to ninety four. So he, I think of him on the Tigers, but he wasn't actually on the team. It was on Blue Jays, right? No, he never played for Toronto, um, Oakland, oh. Baltimore, Detroit, and then he ended his career in Texas. Oakland, okay. Yeah, so the for some reason I, have... I thought I thought Cecil Fielder like came in on the Blue Jays. Oh, I'm sorry, Cecil. Yeah, I'm sorry. I was talking about Mickey Tettleton. Oh, oh, oh. Um, pardon. Yeah, <laughs> Mickey Tettleton started off in Oakland, ended in Texas. 
um, played for 14 years. Fielder, uh, yeah, I think he did. He did start in Toronto, didn't he? Because he went he went from Toronto and then went over to Japan and just like crushed it over that's there. That's right. I forgot about the Japan trip. Yeah, because yeah. that's yeah. The, yeah, the Detroit thing in, was like stopped. He played too. in uh, Toronto eighty five to eighty eight, and then in eighty nine must have been when he went to Japan, and then in nineteen ninety he came back and was an all star and runner up in the MVP. <laughs> Yeah, gosh, man, back to back, dude. Ninety and ninety-one, second place MVP finishes. Yeah, you know that's um, um, God, his, his eighty. I think it was his eighty-six Fleer. Was that the was that the rookie that he shared with somebody? Um, but uh, that that was one of my oh, yeah. favorite cards. I think at one point it was worth like fifty bucks, and that was my <laughs> prize possession. <laughs> right, right. You know, guys, uh, watch it. Looking at Fielder here on on Baseball Reference, he played 13 years as well with that that break in Japan for Japan that Levi had mentioned. Um, <laughs> I have no recollection of him ending his career. 1998, God, all the way in 98, wow. he played for the Angels. Oh, so, yeah, yeah, he played for the Angels, and then he ended it with Cleveland. Was it like was it Prince and Mo Vaughn? Were they teammates at some point? <laughs> Maybe, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so who had more career home runs, um, uh, Cecil or Prince? I'm sorry, I said Prince. Cecil or Prince? Um, well, I'm, I'm looking at Cecil's stats right now, and he had 319. Well, Prince had 319. Oh, really. Let me make sure I'm looking at the right guy. Yeah, Cecil Fielder had 319. So did Prince. Oh, that's well, awesome. Same... <laughs> that's damn that's fantastic. <laughs> Podcast's over, folks. Thanks for tuning in. That's a wrap. Yeah. That's fantastic. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah that is really cool. Although yeah. uh, Prince had 18 stolen bases compared to his old man's two. Right. <laughs> yeah, you guys gonna have me on yeah. YouTube looking up Cecil Fielder stole a base. Wow. <laughs> right. And, and exactly. figure, Prince Prince had forty five pounds on his old man too. Forty five wow. pounds and four fewer inches. Wow. Yeah. yeah. The uh, well, my favorite uh, Tiger is the guy we mentioned earlier, really quickly, and that's Alan Trammell. And I don't know why, but I've always been a sucker for the up the middle guys. I think it started out watching like Sandberg and Sean Dunstan. And then of course at that same time was Lou Whitaker and Trammell. And, uh, you know, I was always into Ripken. I was always into shortstops and second basements. I don't know why, but, um, exciting players to watch in the field. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, uh, I always just respected him. He seemed like, he seemed very Ripken-like in the fact that he, mm-hmm. he seemed to go about the game and just, you know, play the game the the right way and, you know, leave it on the field. And, you know, you didn't really – there was no, like, giant Allen Trammell controversies uh, or anything like that. And uh, so I always – I always when I would – I would pull an Allen Trammell, I would always definitely set it in, like, the little – I had I had a page of Alan Trammels, <laughs> right? When when it was the days of like you would put like you know nine or eighteen of the same guys together. Yeah. All sure. Oh yeah. Levi, Levi, much more success on the field as a player than a manager. He oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. he uh, he was the manager of the Tigers right before they got good. Because I yeah. think I think I think '06 mm-hmm. was the year that the Tigers played the Cardinals in the World Series, yeah. you know, and and they were just but he, 
um, I'm looking at his his page here. Trammell was the manager of the Tigers from 03 to 05, and that's when they were losing like over 100 games. So uh, he didn't have like a ton to work with um, then. But uh, and then also he was the Cubs bench coach for a little while. Levi. Yeah, he was. Yeah. yeah. So uh, tr- Trammell lost the MVP vote um, just by by four votes in 1988. Can you guess who he lost it to? Oh, I know who he lost it Canseco. to. Canseco. American League? Yeah, Canseco. George Bell. Oh! George oh, Canseco Bell? Was, was Canseco MVP? Was Canseco ever MVP? Ooh, that's a good question. 89? No, Henderson, Henderson was in 90. I know that because I got the starting lineup in my office. Oh, okay. Um, Boy, now I'm paranoid. I, I misread that, but I'm pretty okay. sure. Yeah, it was George Bell. Uh, he was the American League MVP in 1988, it says. Jose Canseco. Okay. Hold on. What What am I reading here, then? I think you're thinking of 87, maybe, Bell? You're right about Bell. I'm sorry. Being it is 87. I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry about that. I was like, all of my youth has been a lie if <laughs> Jose Canseco was not the 1988 MVP. <laughs> I, I got one more name to sneak in, guys, That because I, 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 I was kind of – Bogart in the time there, but I, I, I meant Fielder obviously is a favorite. Tettleton. This is strictly based on my pursuit of his baseball card, Matt Noakes. Absolutely. <laughs> right. He was, oh, yeah. dude, look at Noakes. Killer rookie season. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's what made the card hot. I was thinking of this as I was researching this episode. You know, all of us were collecting cards around the same time, and the cards that were really coveted were 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 rookies and prospects you know Mm -hmm. i mean those those cards were worth more than some of the superstar players just because you know that 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 potential is Mm -hmm. is so desirable i mean three guys whose cards were better than their careers right noakes van poppel greg jeffries yep those were like (laughs) i was looking for every card i could find with those three guys on it from like you know, like 88 to 92. Yep. And, um, and so, yeah, so Noakes, uh, Noakes was a hot item on the card show circuit. Everybody was like trying to get Noakes, you know, just cause, cause he had such a killer year, I think in 87, I think. Yeah, it was 87, um, 32 home yeah. runs, 87 RBI. Yeah. Right. Right. And then, you know, other than I think like one decent year on the Yankees, he was never able to recapture it. Well, yeah, yeah he, his career was like almost a blueprint for Giovanni Soto. <laughs> Whereas it's like they had such killer rookie years. It was like, you know, it's it's really hard to live up to that. You know, when you come into the league and bust out onto the scene like that, it's a lot of pressure for a young kid to try and repeat. And, and put it uh, as a, and, and the day in daily grind of being a catcher, too. Oh, right? yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's Learning tough. to hold pitching staff. And yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, but yeah, he there he was he was definitely a flash in the pan, man. He was I I I remember pulling what what was his rookie year? Was it eighty six, eighty seven, eighty seven? He he received uh, rookie of the year votes, so eighty seven. He was yeah. still. Yeah, it, looks, it looks like yeah. it looks like yeah, eighty seven was like Noakes like first full season, right? right yeah. He I was think. still rookie yeah. eligible. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I have um I I. I have one. Um, he's kind of a classic player. 
um, from the 70s. Uh, so obviously it's just been more by learning about him than in the moment cheering him on. But uh, starting pitcher Mark Fidrich. Uh, oh yeah, uh, oh, the bird. Uh, yeah, the bird. Yeah, man. So uh, it's it's interesting. You now uh, Fidrich had uh, kind of the season um, to end all seasons and in, in this uh, for this for all seventies baseball players in that he he became what he was able to do. He became kind of a pop phenomenon. Um, mm-hmm. He went from uh, being a rookie to winning nineteen games in nineteen seventy six, uh, including. Uh, starting the all-star game and it was one of those things where if he was pitching I mean everybody was showing up and it was going to be uh, I think as as one Detroit sports writer called it joyful madness uh, in the stadium <laughs> and uh, Fidrich I mean he would pitch complete game after complete game 11 innings at a time sometimes um, and uh, with the, with the big stage uh, being a game against uh, against the Yankees that he won and he was on the cover of Rolling Stone. Um, and Fidrich was, uh, you know, most well known for his antics. In addition to his success, yeah. it was his antics on the mound. You know, he would he would uh, shout at the baseball as he was getting ready to pitch it. You know, like telling it what it had to do. And and mm-hmm. uh, uh, he would course, he would groom yeah. the mound um, uh, before each inning to to cover up the previous pitcher's uh, um, divots and. Uh, and and the dude just had this joyful abandon. I mean, he would be running around and just shaking guys' hands after routine outs, and he just absolutely loved uh, uh, playing. It was just overwhelmed by the success of it all and the adoration he received. And and uh, um, but unfortunately, you know, he had a he had an injury in that uh, his second year during spring training, and he, and he just never quite recovered. There's several comeback attempts, and and he could never he could never get it back. Um, and, uh, but, but he was, you know, a cult icon or I shouldn't even say cult because I mean, he was absolutely in the forefront of, 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 of baseball and pop culture for, for an entire summer. And, uh, I highly recommend checking out some videos of synopsis of, of the time, because just seeing what they call the joyful madness going on at Tiger stadium is pretty unique. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, that was Mark 76, Fidrich, right? Seventy six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Very cool. Um, yeah, good, good stuff. I mean, I, I, um, you know, the best Tigers of all time. You know, uh, Mickey is the guy that we're watching now. I mean, you know, we've seen we've seen his whole career, and. Um, He's been playing in Detroit since 08. All those other guys, you know, since I didn't really watch them play, like Al Kaline and Ty Cobb, obviously, um, you know, they're kind of mythic figures. Whereas Mithy, M- Miggy, you know, we've kind of seen since the start of his career. Um, but if you look at the numbers, man, I mean, you know, he's he's a top five Tiger. You know, I mean, he... He's more of a of an offensive powerhouse than than Whitaker or, or Trammell were, you know. Um, obviously, those guys were more known for their fielding, despite despite being solid hitters as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, Miggy's like you know he's never, to my knowledge, he's never been popped for roids, right? No, no. Okay, because I mean, his his Miggy's lifetime average is three sixteen over sixteen years. I mean, yeah. he's, he's, he's had like, he's had two seasons, 
God, he's he's had looks like about a half a dozen seasons where he's hit over three twenty. Mm-hmm. So that's it's pretty crazy, man. I think um, his his lack of defense brings him down a notch in terms of all around Tigers, but sure. offensive production alone, absolutely, yeah, he's he's uh, he's right up there. He's a Cooperstown, you know. He's he's a first in my eyes. He's a first ballot guy, you know. So yeah, I mean, he's yeah. going to get to three thousand. Um, though he's getting there a lot slower than people thought, especially considering how quickly he made it to 2000. So, yeah, I mean, obviously he's 35 years old. He's, he's in, he, and injured and was injured last year. So he's, he's on the, uh, he's near the end. Um, but, but yeah, he's, he's a lethal, just, just a lethal hitter, you know, just a, about a 12 year tear there. Yeah. So. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he was easily yeah one of the most feared hitters for a decade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, what do you guys think about? So, the, the Tigers have always had a very classic uh, logo, the kind of the black letter D, um, right. uh, and, uh, and and black letter just in terms of style, not not color. Um, uh, what are your guys' thoughts on on the uh, the steadfast Tigers logo that's evolved a little bit over the years, but stayed mostly the same? Honestly, I prefer the logo that was like on cards. You remember, like eighty five tops, mm-hmm. and it's it's the Tiger logo that they used from like sixty four to ninety three, and it's just like the Tiger, and it says Detroit Tigers, right? Like a little circle. circle. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's a good looking logo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would say that's got to be my top probably pick. Yeah, they never I, like put that on a hat or anything. Um, yeah, and then right after that logo is when they tried to like combine them to where it was like yeah, the, that was like ugly. the calligraphy D with like the tiger popping out of it. Yeah. Right, right. There yeah, were a lot of bad sucked. teams that had to sport that. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Yeah, that one sucked. But um, I like the fact that they haven't, aside from you know that circle that Levi mentioned, uh, which I like as well. Um, they haven't really, you know, they haven't deviated from their from their logo and their their team colors, you know, too much. So. I've always liked that. I always liked the cap that they wore. I guess it's an away cap where it's the navy, kind of dark navy cap with the orange D. Mm-hmm. I always thought it looked pretty sharp as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. You know, that, I, guess, I guess that'd be on their away uniforms, I assume. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. That's uh, definitely a stylish one. Uh, mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. That's, that's a sneaky classic color combination, Gabe. Good point. Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's not what Tom Selleck prefers, not what Magnum PI prefers, but right, right, yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. Um, you know, I just a uh, couple Tiger's notes too. Uh, you know, the the '84 uh, team. You know, gosh, it's it's hard to say this, but uh, the Padres were the team they beat that year. Yeah, in '84. Of course, who did um, the Padres just, beat? Uh Sorry, sorry, Levi. Oh, sorry. Yeah, Levi. I'm sorry. Seriously, that, that I had a lapse there for a second, Levi. All right. Well, with love from Steve Garvey, Levi. All right. So, um, but yeah, yeah. It's, it's weird to say Pirate Padres and World Series in the same sentence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but yeah, but um, yeah, pretty crazy that they. They uh, that they beat the Padres. Yeah, it was. Um, I was watching the last, the last inning of that uh of that world series and it was awesome because i think it was jack buck who called it um mm-hmm. he said uh the, the the tigers had gone up kirk gibson hit a home run i think in the bottom of the eighth 
in Detroit in Game 5, with the Tigers up three games to one, that, that put the game kind of out of reach. It put it from a one-run game to like a, a four-run game, I think, mm-hmm. or a three-run game. And so coming up to the top of the ninth, like everybody's just going bonkers. And it's just a formality. You know, Willie Hernandez is going to shut him down or whatever. And, uh, and, and Jack Buck, I think it was, says, you know, we're just going to let you soak this in with the crowd. And during the last out, the last at bat, they didn't say a word. And it was just like you just watched it and you listened to the crowd. And the final out, they made the final out. And he didn't chime in to say the Tigers have won the World Series. He just let it ride. Yeah. It, was, it was amazing. It's amazing just to like be there in Tiger Stadium yeah. and not hear anything else. Classic like fans rushing the field scene too, oh, you know, uh, yeah. when they when they won the series. <laughs> yeah, no, it was uh, it, it was it was. I, I watched that the other night. It was really fun to to, to see that. Um, yeah, a couple of Jonathan had mentioned earlier uh, Willie Hernandez. You know, God, that's kind of like a forgotten MVP, let alone a forgotten Cy Young. Right. You know, I mean, I, when I, when I was like, Oh, who was the 80, 84 MVP? Jesus, Willie Hernandez, mm-hmm. you know, um, he, he's pretty he's, crazy. He's a bar of... trivia question, trivia answer yeah. that, that that will earn you a drink or two. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, God, and the guy yeah. wins the Cy Young too. Yeah. <laughs> crazy. Yeah. You uh, talked about, you talked about rush in the field. That's gotta be one of the last world series, like rush the fields. Cause it seemed like that that pretty much ended like in the the late mid to late eighties because I think so. They're like yeah. maybe we should have more than six security guards for a World Series game. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> dude, right? Yeah, I, I saw it. there in the in that footage. There was more manhandling of people running the field by the players than there was the cops. Yeah, yeah. 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 I saw yeah. players like, taking right. people yeah. and just like pulling them by the collar. <laughs> You know, I mean, gosh, in Detroit um, in 1984, you know, was was really kind of, um, you know, the city was. It's, I mean, it still is, but it's it was going through some rough times then. So there was a reason. Yeah, yeah, 68 <laughs> as well. I mean, that's it kind of you know, it all started around yeah. the late 60s. So yeah, um, so obviously, you know, it was, it was a city that uh, they needed that win. Oh, know? for sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah. those yeah. two. I should say, yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, in '68, that that city was quite literally on fire when when they yeah. were making their run. Yeah, um, yeah. Another guy, you know, that was um, not a household name, um, didn't get a Cy Young or an MVP. That was pretty good for them. Was Dan Petrie as well in '84? Oh yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. He was like their number two. He strung together like um, you know four or five really strong seasons in the early '80s. Yeah, it would have been Morris at the top of the rotation and then Petrie. Sure. Yeah. I believe so. Um, one last thing on that 84 team. Uh, didn't know this until I was looking at the rosters because I always associate him with uh, with the 1986 World Series. And, and, well, I think he would have been playing with him in 86. But who played third base for the Tigers that year in 84? Anybody? Anybody know? Shit. Uh, hold on. He would have been young. He would have been young. He would have been like maybe like his second or third year in the league. Yeah. Um, I'll, uh, I'll get it here in a, in a second. Yeah. I'll give you a hint. He's uh, a, a once mighty hotel chain. He shares How, the name. Hojo. Oh, How, oh Howard got Johnson. You got it. Yeah. Right. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, Hojo was on that, that Tigers I, I for, team. I always think of Howard Johnson as a Met. Same here. Yeah. Because yeah. 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 I think he was on the 86 Mets team. Yeah, so, I believe but, so. Yeah. So yeah, but he started his career in Detroit, and he was their starting third baseman. Yeah, so Ho- Hojo got a couple of rings. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. 
Good yeah. stuff, guys. Detroit Tigers. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, I'm trying to think, who, gosh, who's their best player now? You know, I'm trying to think of like where the Tigers stand now. Castellanos, maybe. No, oh, Nick Castellanos. Well, obviously, yeah. Miggy, obviously. But, well, um, I don't, yeah, I don't know. Moving forward, if it's if it's gonna be, um, yeah. Uh, I'll tell you that. Uh, let's see. In the um, 2018 season, uh, their best players. God, man, they had Scherzer and Verlander at the same time bonkers to think about yeah right huh um well yeah and couldn't make it happen really yeah. Did right. they, did they, yep. yeah 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 they didn't even come close i mean it was like a five game series um but in uh 2018 yeah they only won 64 games last year uh, and i think they won 64 games the year before uh so they've they're they've been going nowhere fast um otherwise uh yeah they're uh let's see their best player uh, and last year was Mike Fires, then Nick Castellanos, and then Jose Iglesias. They do not have much. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully, um, hopefully, I can turn that around. Well, you know, well, they're in my they're in my division. So yeah, somebody has to. I don't lose. want them, I don't want them to get good yeah. <laughs> that soon. But anyway, <laughs> but yeah, so fun history to to. Um, to cover there with the with the tigers and sure thing kind of moving on to um you know one of the other things that detroit is famous for uh not only making thunderbirds but making records as well um they've made a few they made a few yeah it's a, a city that's kind of important to popular music to say the least um so i want to talk about that now um, moving on to the to the history of, of Detroit music, and talked about this a little bit in the introduction, but um, for I, th- I think for American pop music, it might be the country's most important city. Um, you know, New York and LA are, are always, and San Francisco are are always. You know, they're so they're so big, and they're so just they're. That's um, kind of we always think about things happening there, but. Um, I mean, they just really, they own the decade of the sixties Detroit did, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, um, it's pretty unprecedented, you know, and, and not to mention not only the label Motown being there, but all of the musicians that were from the city where the records were being made, you know, I mean, obviously people, musicians from all over traveled to New York or they traveled to LA or they, in the sixties, they traveled to San Francisco or if you're country, you know, you go to Nashville or, you know, like with Detroit, like it was, it was so localized. That's what really stands out to me. You know, you look at you look at the Motown roster and all those historic names. Look where they're from. They're all from right there. Right. You know, I mean, yeah. that's that's yeah, homegrown. The uh, yeah, one of the things um, Barry Gordy talked about in an interview one time was that they took almost like a Henry Ford approach to it. They wanted it to be like assembly line style to where, you know, kind of like how Chet Atkins did it with the Nashville sound. And so it, what started as an $800 loan, he got an $800 loan to start a business. So he got that building, which is iconic now with those two huge front windows and it was originally a, uh, I think like a camera shop or like a little mm-hmm. photo studio. And um, he started his assembly line. And so like once 
he had he had started out being one of the main songwriters for Sam Cooke, and so that's how he kind of got his enough notoriety and clout to get the loan to start Motown, mm-hmm. and so he starts churning out you know the acts and it starts becoming popular. Well, then like it does, it blossoms into this whole like factory, like they have on on staff like stylists, like people trying to like you know design costumes for all the acts there was like right. choreographer a house choreographer brought in showing all the motown groups how to do the moves and stuff and like yeah. like it's a it it's a really neat way to where you know what they were doing on one side of town in the factory making cars they applied it to the music you know yeah. what i mean yeah and, and it was successful for them which is oh, really- yeah. You it's Phil USA, man. Yeah, and yeah. so I, I just think that's really neat, and it's you know, that that that's the American dream right there, too. Yeah. You know what I mean? Starting your own business like and, that. And, and, and I, a part of me, you know, used to kind of Levi mentioned the assembly line thing. You know, I, I didn't really get into Motown. Uh, obviously, like I heard the songs on the radio growing up. You know, listened to you know my mom listened to the oldie stations in the car and things like that. But I put it down for a while because you know I I thought like oh maybe it is just kind of manufactured. Um, but God, the tunes are so good, and oh, the yeah. production value is so rich. Um, I've really just kind of fallen in love with the sound over the last few years, um, even prior to to researching this episode. So um, it. Uh, you know, it, to me, the, uh, you know, production can kind of go two ways. You know, it can go, you know, you can you can sort of not do enough of it or, you know, you can you can do too much. But um, the production on on these these Motown records, I think, is just it's just so ear friendly, you know, and it's so um, it's just so well done. Um, it's it's quintessential American pop music. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, the I mean, we could sit here and just do the whole episode about Motown. Absolutely, uh, yeah. <laughs> the, the, there's that much of a like rich history there, and like I want to also preface for everyone listening, we know music didn't start in Detroit in oh, the, sure. in, in the early '60s, and it didn't stop in the late '70s. But that's the period we're probably going to concentrate on the most. Totally, totally. Yeah, and um, so yeah, I mean, Motown was was cranking they were in town doing their thing and so the you have the whole era of segregation and civil rights and all sure. that and so white kids across town are hearing these black records and so then that's where you get detroit home of blue-eyed soul and so one of the first guys to do that w- was mitch Ryder in oh yeah the the early and mid 60s came along had that soulful voice and started playing some of those what were then you know considered in some areas still like race records is what they were marketed as at record stores and stuff which is crazy and um you know mitch Ryder then you know, he had a hit in uh, 1965 was his first hit. It was a song called Jenny Take a Ride. And then um, after that, he redid a Righteous Brothers song, which is funny. It's the name of the song is called Little Latin Loopy Lou. But one of my favorite my one of my favorite things of the song is in the movie High Fidelity, Jack Black and his coworker 
arguing about who's better, uh, the the Mitch Ryder version or the Righteous Brothers, and <laughs> it's definitely the Mitch Ryder version, but um, yeah. <laughs> regardless. Uh, then in 66, Devil with a Blue Dress song, Good Golly Miss Molly, was like a giant hit for him. And uh, He's just belting it out on those Oh, yeah, yeah. Too, he's one of those guys, though, where you would think after that, like his career would have just been like, boom. And it was yeah. kind of the opposite. Like mm-hmm. he went downhill. And um, he did make a record with a band that he put together in 1971 called Detroit. That's the right. name of the band. And it's the name of the record. It's self-titled. And um, it's a, it's not a bad record. You know what I mean? I hate to say it because he's still out and performing and stuff, but I have no idea what he sounds like or anything. But the Detroit record would be kind of what I would call his last gasp as like a featured major yeah, like recording sure. artist. And so it's pretty good though. Uh, if you go back and listen to it, it's there are songs on it that are not bad at all. And the one that became an actual hit off of it on the radio, a minor hit was he covered um rock and roll by velvet underground. Hmm. Oh, nice. And so, yeah, their their version on that was a minor hit on the charts. And so Mitch Ryder then leads you right into the next guy. Born May 6, 1945, but would change the world forever. And that's Bob Seger. One of, one, one of my favorite, favorite Detroit sons. And... uh Shit, we could do the whole episode on Seger. Yeah, yeah. And so he picks up in 1968... He picks up on the foundation that Mitch Ryder was laying down in like 65 and 66 with a song called Rambling Gambling Man, which a lot of the songs coming out of the Detroit area at that time just have a great like lo-fi garage rock sound. Mm -hmm. And that was one thing that Detroit has and has always done well is that type of a sound. And uh, so Rambling Gambling Man becomes a, a, a decent size hit. And so Capitol signed Bob Seger to like a forget how many record deal, like four or five. I forgot how many it was. But what's funny is after that first initial hit, Rambling Gambling Man, it took Seeger a while to get like back into the charts. Like yeah, on a yeah, about, about basis. four or five years or so. Yeah. Oh, no like kidding. his ne- his next mm-hmm. major major hit wasn't technically until Night Moves, which is like seventy five or seventy six. Wow, right? Yeah, so about the gosh, yeah. So like yeah. He, he went almost six or seven years, but the thing is, those six or seven years gave him the time on the road to like woodshed because a lot of the songs that became like live staples and that are on Live Bullet were songs he was touring and playing in, like, 72. Because mm-hmm. his his album called Back in 72, which really didn't have any major hits on it at the time, it's where Turn the Page originally came from. Mm-hmm. So, like, he was, like, he was working his catalog up and getting it together. And then, yeah, in 76 is when Night Moves hit and then Live Bullet came out after that. And it was just, like, like Bob Seger was everywhere. Hmm. Hey, he toured with Kiss a few times, man. Uh, really? Like in like '74, or so yeah, '74, like before he became a headliner. Yeah. Yeah. He 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 paid his dues. You know what oh, I mean? Oh yeah. He, he yeah. toured a long time before he got he got super uber famous. But then you know, um, 
78 came Stranger in Town, and then 1980 was Against the Wind, and then that's when his sales kind of started falling off. He did have The Fire Inside, which I want to say, well, that was like mid-80s, something like that. Well, I, I, what's Seeger's only number one single, boys? There's a, here's a, uh, it's unlikely, it's not... It's not the Seeger song that, you know, you'll be like, oh, what are Bob Seeger's best songs? What's his only number one hit? Pop uh, quiz. Is it Like a Rock? Nope. Okay. Uh, it's got to be, an, is it live? Is it a live cut? No. Okay. Uh, Noah? No. I don't know it. Shakedown. Oh <laughs> yeah, yeah. Down. Your yeah. Guns that was that was a number one hit, it. wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It was on. Uh, that was um, Beverly Hills Cop Two. Two, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's his only number one, man. And was it only, only on the soundtrack? I believe, I believe it was. Yeah, I let me double think check. So. He may have put it on an album, like because it was so successful, he might have tacked it on to one. That, of his... that was an '80s thing. They sure. used to do that a lot. I see. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Um, uh, soundtrack of Beverly Hills Cop 2 is all I'm seeing. Uh, there's a 7-inch single of it, which I actually have the single of this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's from 87. Yeah. Um, yeah, crazy, man. His uh, <laughs> let's, let's just say, with all due respect, he has better songs. <laughs> so, little, yeah. see, a little behind the music on that. Uh, the first movie obviously had the big hit, The Heat Is On, with Glenn Fry. Right. They approached Glenn Fry with Shakedown because he had the hit on the first movie. Glenn Fry didn't like the lyrics, and then he ended up coming down with laryngitis, so they gave the song to Seeger. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, even though you know we associate the Eagles with, um, with L.A., uh, Glenn Fry's a Detroit guy. And he, Bob Seger, helped co-write, um, is it One of These Nights? I think, I think so, yeah. He, he, he co-wrote an Eagles tune. Um, Let me see which one it is. Heartache Tonight, yeah. Oh, okay. Tonight. <laughs> yeah. Which, if you listen to that song, it's like, yeah, I can hear yeah. Seger, Seger yeah. singing yeah. Heartache Tonight. That's that's pretty easy to imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, Seeger is 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 a god in my eyes. So I mean, that's I don't I don't have much to add that Levi hasn't hasn't already said. Um, you know, it's talking about um, you know folks other other uh, Detroit musicians. Yeah, uh, yeah. I basically only got us up to Seeger. I yeah. There's still, there's still some major players we got to touch on well you know it's it's his name is associated with it often but because he was born and raised there but um uh alice cooper is from detroit okay but as the alice cooper band you know the guys that he played with on his first few records they they actually formed in phoenix so he's he's always kind of been like a guy that like i you know people associate with detroit but he didn't necessarily kind of like really like cut his chops there you know what i mean so to speak or cut his teeth i should say um but but yeah it's um i mean a guy that we haven't mentioned that 
is uh, we, we talked about kind of a I, – I wanted to put out the idea of doing kind of a Mount Rushmore of Detroit. Can we do that now? Is that cool? Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, Levi, Levi, why don't you actually, if you have your choices, why don't you go ahead and I'll – I'll talk about I'll talk about mine afterwards, but so we each just let's just do them four at a time. Four, you know what I mean? Like, okay. yeah, yeah. So just mimicking route much Rushmore, but let's put it in a, a very visible part of Detroit. So yeah, let it rip. Okay, I would do obviously Bob Seger. Um, I think. Oh, this is tough. Okay, Bob Seger, Wayne Kramer, and Fred Sonic Smith. Okay, so you guys are three. You're going to go with both of those guys then. And then, so I pick one more, right? Yeah. Uh, we'll do Mitch Ryder. I'll give it to Mitch. Good choices. Se- Seger, Ryder, and then the two guitars from the MC5. Nice, nice. Gets. what about you? Uh. Yeah, so I'm going to um, I'm going to honor Stevie Stevie Wonder. Yes, all right. Yeah, yeah. Good call. And uh, um, Iggy Iggy Pop. Right, right, right. And uh, a musician I respect, but I actually don't listen to that much. Um, but I really respect him and and the quality of music he does, and also the all the extracurriculars. Jack White. I put yeah. Jack White on there, yeah. um, and uh, Ray Parker Jr. Of course. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Yeah, you know, I mean, if we if we if we talk about recent years with rock, um, obviously people are going to think of that one guy, Kid Rock, um, but they'll also um, you know think about Jack White. And as I was doing some research on Mitch Ryder. I would love to hear Jack White cover like Mitch Ryder songs. You know what I mean? Like, cause it, it's almost, um, he's, he's almost a, um, oh gosh, I don't know. Uh, he's like Mitch Ryder with kind of like more eclectic taste, you know I mean? I don't know how else to put it, but that's a good choice. Um, well, I, I've got to go with sort of the godfather of the sound for, for my, I've got to go with Barry Gordy as, as even though if I can go sort of, you know, non-musician like i i want him you know just he's got to be up there just for for all of his contributions um i'm gonna go with aretha good um putting putting aretha we need a um, we need a lady on i think we need more than one yeah (laughs) we need more than one yeah like my honorable mention list is about 20 people deep all right i'll I'll take down ray i'll put up diana ross just uh yeah yeah okay all right yeah all right i felt like the ray parker jr with all due respect to ray was a little in jest so um so yeah um so yeah barry gordy uh aretha um you know i'll i'll my my other two were seager and stevie wonder right um which you know you guys have already have already cited those. Um, so yeah, but uh, yeah, so Barry Gordy, Seeger, Stevie Wonder, and Aretha for nice. me. Nice. Um, you know, I uh, one guy we haven't mentioned as well that made my honorable mention list would be Smokey Robinson as well. Sure. Yeah. Um, and also another guy. Uh, I, for one, I love Levi. So I, I musicians with the name Levi. Levi Stubbs of the Four Tops would also be an honorable <laughs> mention. He was their lead vocalist, yeah. And then um, 
you know, Temptations as well. Eddie Kendricks was great. Um, yeah, so good, good stuff. Um, it could be a yeah. big Mount Rushmore, no doubt. It really could. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, good, good, good stuff there. And and then you know, with with more recent music of of Detroit, um, you know, the uh, obviously when you mention Detroit music now, people are going to think of Eminem. And people are going to think of, of of Kid Rock, unfortunately, um, and then also Jack White, um, you know, and and all those folks, you know, they're they're part of the story of 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 Detroit. Even though, if I'm not mistaken, Kid Rock is from the suburbs. I think <laughs> um, I had to throw in that dig, but anyway, <laughs> um, sorry, couldn't. Couldn't help but mention it, Bob Ritchie. Um, so, so yeah. And the, but the, the, the even harder to talk about than Kid Rock is uh, another guy that actually was spent his teenage years in the Chicago suburbs. I didn't know that he, he went to high school. I think in Arlington Heights. Um, but you know, it's it, it, it. I and it's even hard to say this just because he's been so awful in recent years. But like. You know, like uh, Nugent's like 75 to 80. I mean, his his stuff smokes, you know, I mean, like. Oh, dude, the I, guy could play guitar like a motherfucker. Like, Ted, Ted Nugent, yeah. just to be. Yes, Ted Nugent. Yeah. I mean, yeah, no, it's, yeah. It's, 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 it's tough to even like, to, I, like to the point where like now, like I even like, if I hear one of his tunes, like I almost feel guilty enjoying it just because he's so, <laughs> such a blowhard, you know what I mean? But I've got a few bootlegs um, from like, you know, like. I think one I've got is from like 75. I've got another one from like 78 and then another one from 80. And man, his band, you know, with Derek St. Holmes. Oh yeah. They were just, good. Just on fire. Um, and they, you know, they jam like the, you know, I've got like great white buffaloes and they all like sound kind of different on those bootlegs as well, you know? Um, so he was such a fluid player. It's just, you know, now you think of him and it's just all the, all of his idiocy just overshadows the plane, you know? I mean, it, it got to the point where, like, you know, like 10 years ago or so, you're just like, oh, all right. Like, it's hard to even talk about his music now just yeah. because he's yeah. awful. And, it, you and know, it take, just to be clear, it takes a lot. Like, a lot of times you'll, you'll hear somebody complain, oh, I can't believe this, you know, actor or musician spoke out about this thing. I'm not going to consume their thing anymore. Yeah, like, right. It's not just that. It's an extreme version right right like he's like blatantly racist right i mean let's just yeah he's he's kind of an off he's an awful human being um yeah and he had he has a history too from the 70s right of yeah kind of a predator underage girl yeah Yeah, yeah. he's 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 an awful human being and i mean granted you know you it's it's um so we're we're not just being snowflakes here yeah, right. <laughs> he, he just did it for the Wang Dang Sweet Poon Tang guys. I mean, gosh. Yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah, it's it, he's like I said, it's it's to the point where now you you just it's it's hard for me to even enjoy the music of his that I did dig because I mean, God, I mean, Great White Buffalo is a ripping song. I oh, mean, yeah, you know, it's a killer what a riff. I mean, yeah. you know, um, but but yeah, it's it's the thing where now I'm like, uh, I just. Like I can't stomach it, you know. It's like yeah. just you, you know, because I mean, you, you you put that before the music, you know, like like transfer over to baseball, right? 
I don't think of Kurt Schilling as a great picture pitcher. I think of him as a right wing blowhard. You know what I mean? And uh-huh. that's like kind of applied to to Nugent as well, even more extreme. Like I have know. the same. Like I grew up listening. My parents had like all the Hank Junior. Oh yeah, it's the same thing. Hank Junior. Yeah, you know, right. same yeah. thing. Like he just he just makes me cringe so much now that like and I I you know Hank Juniors if you're just exclusively like remove the person from the music you know. I mean, yeah, like yeah, I, I like I like Obosifus's old stuff, man, you know. But like, then you like hear him now, like talk about politics, and you're like, oh, he's he's gross, you know. I mean, <laughs> and, and it's not just like it's not just like I disagree with his opinions, you know what I mean? Like, it's it's more like, oh, he's like he's like pretty awful, you know. It's not just these aren't just like you know, yeah. He's yeah. just a Republican or something like that. It's it's oh, he's one of those Republicans <laughs> like Ted Nugent. Yeah, it's 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 too bad. And, yeah. uh, you know, like I I, I kind of like was sort of like, ah, oh, God, do I even bring up Nugent? You know, um, but like it's he's part of the the areas. Yeah. Motor City Madman. We had yeah. this mention. Yeah. And, and, oh. and that Motor City lineage is is a little misleading, too. Right. I mean, yeah, it's kind of like Kid Rock because he was he was raised burbs, in the Detroit right? suburbs, yeah. and then he spent his high school years in the Chicago suburbs, and then I think I, I assume he just kind of maybe hopped back and forth between Chicago and Detroit. I don't know, but um, you know, he's him and Kid Rock are. <laughs> what do you know? They're both kind of posers, all right? <laughs> so anyway, well, yeah, I'm gonna talk really quick about a super influential band to come out of there and um, around, you know, the same era as, as it, Mitch Ryder and Bob Seeger there in the late sixties. And that's the MC five. Oh fuck. Yeah. One of the only band full band to show up at the 1968 democratic national convention in Chicago and play at Lincoln park. Yeah. They played for almost nine hours straight. <laughs> Supposedly, Neil Young showed up, but saw what a fucking shit show it was and was like, I'm not playing. <laughs> and so, yeah, like there were supposed there was like a full day's bill of artists that were supposed to play. And the MC5 were the only people that <laughs> they just didn't get on the stage. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so good deal. Well, yeah, man. Thank so, God they burned my respect there. That was in 68, and their debut, Kick Out the Jams, hadn't, it didn't come out until 69. So it was in an era where they were pretty much purely just known off of their live show, which I guess, you know, if you've watched any footage of the MC5, there's clips on the YouTube. You know, each show looked like a like controlled chaos or what you, mm-hmm. you know with, with john sinclair as the conductor you know right and, yeah, you know. yeah and uh yeah there's a really a really neat set of clips where they played the it's called tartar field in detroit in 1970 and it's black and white and yeah man it's like you could tell it's like one of those free shows at a park or like it's this tartar mm-hmm. field to where it's like everyone's there. There's black kids, there's white kids. It's like the crowd is huge and they're just doing their thing going crazy. And um, I mentioned earlier, Fred Sonic Smith and then the other guitarist is Wayne Kramer. And those two guys basically laid the groundwork for punk music. Kind Pretty of much, um, yeah. you know, with that, 
what what they said their what their goal was was that they liked basically anything fast and anything that really rocked and like that's why they like went towards that like early 50s era rock cuz you know sure. just the da da na 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 and yeah. so it it's cool to think that punk is based off of 50s rock you know what i it mean is, sure yeah uh, um and so they were big enough to have three records, which isn't very many for bands at that time. Because, you know, they only stayed together to what, like 72, I think. is. Do you guys know? I think the MC5 was only together. Not They weren't together very long. Short tenure, yeah. Three studio um, records, and then they were done. And, um, yeah, I just think they were really cool in that aspect, and that they. Uh, oh, that's trailblazing! Yeah, definitely. Then, that first run went to seventy-two. Did it? Okay. Yeah, seventy-two. Yeah. So yeah, the in that same sound of of that garage rock type of of sound that Detroit does so well is another band I'm going to mention really quick called Frigid Pink, and not mm-hmm. everybody knows about them. They're not a, a household name. But in 1970, they came out with a self-titled record, and they covered House of the Rising Sun, and it's just a killer garage rock version of it, if you've never heard it. And um, lastly, my last favorite band out of Detroit is The Romantics, which is a band from the late 70s, early 80s that sounds like an old band. Go figure. That's... (laughs) That's kind of my thing, I guess. I like I like bands that are old or that sound old. But um yeah, they uh obviously had a couple radio hits with What I Like About You and uh what is it? The Secrets That You that Keep. That you keep. Yeah, that was yeah. from eighty three. Yeah. yeah. Um which was yeah. the bigger I think it might have been the bigger hit, like on the charts. Mm-hmm. But I, I definitely prefer what I like about you over if we're picking their singles. It's a ripping song. Um, one artist that I haven't heard any of us mention yet that is – I always heard her name, um, but I didn't kind of know you know, how sort of um, important she was until recently. Um, I don't know if you guys did listen to any Susie Quattro yeah, this while, week. You were, while you were <laughs> yeah. researching this episode. But yeah, um, good stuff. You know, it's a you know, female bass player. Um and uh, it 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 also it also had a little bit of a it, definitely like a garage rock kind of feel yeah. to it, but also a little swingier, you know, a little bit poppier as well. Uh, not too much, but um, you know, it, it kind of had a fifties vibe with it. I don't I don't know if she was um, she was friends with like the Dolls, the New York Dolls, or anything like that. But it I could I could see them as a double bill, you know, like her and Johnny Thunder seemed like they would have an appreciation of a lot of. A lot of you know they kind of want to punk out a lot of fifties artists you know sort of sort of thing. So yeah, I I enjoyed listening to Susie Quattro, uh, who's still touring as well. Um, I, I believe still still putting out records too. So uh, I listened to that yeah. Pleasure, the Pleasure Seekers uh, album, which was her band mm-hmm. in the sixties, and that yeah. is amazingly kind of ahead of its time yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's... yeah she's important you know I, I I have to admit I'd always heard the name but then when I started reading up on her. Um, yeah, definitely, uh, um, you know, a, a Detroit music hero, really. My daughter, that's how we spell her shorthand name. Susie, ah, okay. S-U-Z-I. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Homage. Yeah. Killer Tour in 74, man. It was early, very early Kiss. 
Blue Oyster Cult and Susie Quattro. Whoa, awesome. That would have been a that yeah. would have been a good pull. Wow. Oh yeah, man. Oh, I yeah. one more act I was gonna mention from Motown, and it was um Motown experimented with like w- like white acts. Yeah. And so their most successful experiment was a band called Rare Earth. Yep. Good stuff. And um yeah, like I would put them in the same vein as like like a more funkier Chicago or like blood, sweat and tears. It's like that horns. Yeah, yeah. It's like horns and funk kind of Santana ish with the drums. Right. But yeah, they uh they had a couple great records in the late sixties with a couple kind of tower of power a little bit kind of feel. Yeah, too, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Good, so good stuff. Uh, and a lot of people don't realize Rare Earth is from Detroit. I didn't originally. I didn't know that until you mentioned it. Yeah, um, inter- interesting stuff there. I um, a, a, a couple newer acts that, and I think she's been around for a while. But a, a really good kind of under the radar Detroit music pick that I wanted to share. There's a band called the Paybacks, and I, I don't know if they're still active, but uh, gosh, about. 10, 12 years ago when I had a Sirius subscription, I heard them on, uh, there's a channel on Sirius, uh, Underground Garage, which is kind of curated by Little Steven from, uh, you know, from, from the Eastern Band. And um, there was a band on there that, you know, I heard one of their songs that really knocked me out. They're called The Paybacks, and they're from Detroit. Uh, female lead singer, kind of garage punk. Um, they've got an album from 2006 called Love Not Reason. That I, I bought um, after I you know after I just heard that one song on um, on Sirius and I, I still listen to the record quite a bit uh, just a really good you know she's kind of got like a Patti Smith esque vibe to her the lead singer and I'm sorry I, I'm not doing her justice I don't have her name handy right here but um, yeah and I, I don't like I said I don't know if they're active or anything but a really really good record of theirs Love Not Reason uh, from 2006 check it out yeah the Paybacks. Um, is uh, is the name of them? Cool. Along those same lines, I found uh, well, not along the same lines in terms of music, but um, just more recent as a band called Majesty Crush um, mm. that uh, had had a uh, uh, released an album or two in the early '90s, and uh, yeah, I, I recommend checking them out. Majesty Crush, cool. Yeah. Another band. I don't know if you guys have heard them that um, from Detroit that uh, yeah, they, they certainly have a punk influence. Um, I don't know, they get dubbed with the label post-punk, whatever that means. I guess that means denser punk, I don't know. But anyway, um, you know, I guess there's kind of like, you know, you could sort of say there's maybe like a little bit of a, like a Joy Division sort of influence on them, I guess. You know, I guess that could mean that. Um, I think it's Proto-Martyr. Has anybody mm-hmm. heard that? Mm-hmm. Or, pretty, pretty interesting. Levi, A band that Levi had turned me on to, actually right around the time we started doing this podcast called Parquet Courts. Uh, they kind of remind me of them, Levi. Okay. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's got, I could, I could see those guys touring or being on the same bill. Yeah. So proto and then martyr it's, 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 I think you dig it. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's some, it's thinking person's punk rock, you know, it's, (laughs) it's pretty good. So yeah. So yeah, that's another, they're a pretty good act that's, that's come around in recent years that I, I like out of Detroit as well. So, uh, finally, I want to say one person out um as well kind of bittersweet eddie harsh passed away uh about two years ago and while ed is a canadian um he spent a lot of years in detroit and lived there for a while and he was kind of a fixture 
on the Detroit music scene before he joined the Black Crows. So in the 80s, you know, he was, um, you know, he's playing with Money Waters and stuff like that. But uh, yeah. Ed, Ed, Eddie Harsh as well, I think. Uh, yes, absolutely. I'll, I'll, I'll give a nod to a uh, a Detroit, uh, great Detroit musician. Even though, you know, again, he's he grew up uh, over the border, but um, he was always introduced. Like Chris would always introduce him on stage as Ed from Detroit. Right. Like yeah, so yeah. 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 I'll, uh, I'll I'll throw Ed in there as well. So. Yeah. Absolutely. Two, yeah. Two years gone. Wow. Rest, rest in peace, Eddie. Oof. Absolutely. Yeah. So good stuff, guys, man. Um, well, yeah, you know, we obviously couldn't touch it all. But we do. We could. I yeah, we... I want to say that, you know, God, I, I almost I almost feel bad even bringing up Nugent just with all those other people like I didn't get a chance to mention, you know, I was, <laughs> like, did but, we but, say the Supremes at any point? Yeah. God, <laughs> yeah. You know, I think you said Diana, Diana, yeah, Ross, I mean, yeah. Diana Ross, but, yeah. um, you know, I got, got um, um, Martha and the Vandells as well, you know. Smokey um, Robinson and the Miracles. Oh, yeah, so yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, did, I did mention yeah. Smokey, but yeah, um, but yeah, God, the, the list just goes on. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, God, Jesus. Um, so anyway, it's this was a difficult one to narrow down to an hour or so. Um, but yeah, you know, you can tell us um, any Detroit musicians that we missed or or you can kind of piggyback on what we said and, and just keep some more accolades on all these great musicians that we that we mentioned tonight. You can follow us on the Facebook. Um, you can also uh, I should say like us on Facebook. That's what you do. You like. Um, and then uh, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at Rock in chew that's rock as in feel like a number um so you know one one thing before i go um a friend of ours mutual friend of of all of us um boomer um he has a theory you know how bob seger said like kind of like in like uh rock and roll never forgets he goes like "Ah!" you know like that have you guys ever heard boomer's theory about how seger got that sound because he does it on feel like a number he does it on a lot of two just the seger kind of belting it out right boomer's like oh yeah dude they had the seger snake in the studio so like (laughs) like imagine everybody like sitting around the studio they're like man i don't know bob just really doesn't have it today you know so bob's got the headphones on he's in the studio producer holds up a snake bob's like So the Seeger snake, very important, very important to the history of Detroit. Yeah. That's how Bob got the sound, folks. Thank you for that one. Um, so yeah, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Rock In Chew. Also, want to remind everybody you can get this episode as well as any other Rock and Roll Shinsu Chew episode at. Uh, our website, which is rockchew.com, all of the archives are there. You can listen to us on iTunes, YouTube, or any of your favorite podcasting apps. So, until episode number 96, signing off. Had a good time tonight, boys. Uh, hope everybody stays safe, and uh, we'll see you again soon. Peace.